to Down City Cash Chicago. We're a week into the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. Rittenhouse was 17 years old when he shot and killed two men and injured another in Kenosha. Kenosha is in Wisconsin, but it's close enough to Chicago to be on the Metro line. A reporter in the courtroom tells us what we've heard in the trial so far and what we can expect. It's Wednesday, November 10th. I'm Jacoby Cochran, and this is CityCast Chicago. For me, this case is so obviously, it lives at the intersection of our conversations on race and gun rights in America. Who has access to defense and storytelling in this country? There are intersections with how we at times coddle white supremacist ideology. For me, I'm going to do my best to to move through these questions uh, with a sense of objectivity, but that does not exist when you're looking at a question or a trial like the Rittenhouse trial. Yeah, I mean, I really think this case is like sort of like a national Warshock test where however you look at it says so much about where you are in in the world and where you are on certain positions and just sort of, I get it. I hear from people all day long about this case and, and nobody feels ambivalent about it. Stacey St. Clair is a reporter at the Chicago Tribune. Last August, Jacob Blake, a black man living in Kenosha, was shot seven times by a white Kenosha police officer. He lived, but is paralyzed. In the aftermath, protests broke out there and here in Chicago. On day two of the protests, Kyle Rittenhouse traveled across state lines from Illinois to Wisconsin, armed with an illegally obtained assault rifle, boasting he was there to defend local businesses. He ended up killing Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber. We talked to Stacy during the lunch recess of the trial. The prosecution was just about to rest. First and foremost, Stacy, what are the charges against Kyle Rittenhouse? There's seven charges, and some of them are he blew off the curfew that was, uh, you know, instituted across Kenosha that night. Um, that he had a gun when he was. Um, 17 years old. And though Wisconsin is an open carry state, which I know is a little bit hard for, for Chicagoans like us to get our, to get our minds around, it is an open carry state. If he had been a year older, he could have been carrying that AR-15 down the street without a problem. But um, he was 17. So he has that charge. There's the, the two murder charges involving Rosenbaum and Huber. There's the um, bodily injury charge involving Gage Grosskreutz. And then there's two, um, I think people need to pay attention to this. There are two endangerment charges against him, one of which involves a videographer from the Daily Caller who was right behind Joseph Rosenbaum when he was shot. Yeah, Richard McGinnis. Richard McGinnis, yes. And um, who, by the way, Richard McGinnis testified he did feel in danger when Rittenhouse started shooting. So I think that's something that the defense was very unhappy to hear. And they tried to get him to sort of back off that. And, and he, he refused. And then there's another endangerment charge for the person when you watch the video who sort of jump, tries to kick Rittenhouse after he falls to the ground, but kind of jumps over him. And after he's jumped over him, um, he gets shot at twice and uh, Rittenhouse misses. Let's talk about the Two witnesses the prosecution called to testify. First, Richard McGinnis, right? You mentioned earlier he was a videographer from the Daily Call. Yeah, Daily Caller, yeah. 
How did he end up in Kenosha this night and what role did he play in this situation? The night before the Rittenhouse shootings had been a very um, violent night. And so he had gone there to sort of film the day after and he met Rittenhouse on the on the street. Rittenhouse was you know, guarding a used car lot. And he told uh, McGinnis that he was um, an adult and that he was a certified medic. He was neither at the time. People are getting injured. And our job is to protect this business. And part of my job is to also help people. If there's somebody hurt, I'm running into harm's way. Rittenhouse was kind of walking, you know, in and out of the crowd, offering medical services, which people were actually annoyed with him for doing and also, you know, kind of laughing at him and and because he's carrying this, you know, giant assault rifle. Yes, we are. No, if I can ask, can you guys step back? Medical EMS right here. I'm an EMT. There's a, a moment in the video where one of the guys who's who's at the protest um, just yells out at, at Rittenhouse and says, you think you're in a movie. And I like for me, that seems like it's that, that seemed like the best description of how he was behaving that night. He's playing Mortal Kombat, basically. It seems like. Do you think he was going in this with that sort of uh, with that sort of prideful chest of like I'm here to do good work? Right, right. And there was um, a text message that was entered into evidence where he basically texts the owner of the used car lot and said. Hey, can my my brother and I come guard your building tonight? You know, we'll come armed, and and the guy never responds, and he shows up anyway. But it just showed like how eager he was. Hold on, I had it. I had been under the the frame of mind that he was asked to be there, that he was hired to be there. The car lot owners testified that they did not give anyone permission to to be there that night. So the man reading how shot, but who survived testified as Gage Grosskreitz. Stacey, can you tell me who is Grosskreitz? Gage is a, a trained paramedic. He testified that he heard the shots, um, which turned out being the shots when, when Rittenhouse was shooting Joseph Ro- Rosenbaum. He ran toward the shots, and then he crosses paths with Rittenhouse. And he says to Rittenhouse, did you just shoot somebody? Rittenhouse responds, um, I'm going to the police. I didn't do anything. And he said that he you know, started following Rittenhouse, believing he was an active shooter. Anthony Huber comes in then with a with a skateboard. He suffers a fatal uh, chest wound. And in Wisconsin, the jury's going to have to answer two questions. The first being, did the defendant have a, a reasonable... No, did the defendant think he was in, his, in danger for his life or, or serious harm? If the answer is yes, was that belief reasonable? And... Grosskreutz actually helped Rittenhouse on on this count because he said part of the reason why he followed Rittenhouse was because he believed either Rittenhouse or somebody else could be seriously hurt. Were there any other witnesses that the prosecution brought forward who who provided some important details or filled in some gaps? After the Rittenhouse shootings, there was that very famous portion of the video in which he walks right by two police officers. Mm -hmm. Um, He walks by a squad car after the shooting. His hands are raised and 
they basically, you know, tell him, get out of the street, and they don't arrest him, and they, they ignore what looks like a surrender attempt. And was he vocally admitting to what he had done, or was he just quietly with his hands raised? Quietly with his hands raised. And he occasionally does lower them and touch his gun and, and raise them again. And the police acknowledged that um, this is sort of their first public explanation for this. And, and it looks so, it looked, it looks horrible. It looks like, it looks like what it is. Um, on video, and that is an example of, you know, white privilege and racial bias in policing. The only thing I can remember him saying was something about a shooting, um, that there was no other verbal indication from him coming directly saying it was me, it was just something about a shooting. Okay, and you had just heard shots fired. Yes. This person's walking to you with his hands up. And it was important to hear the the explanation such as it was. And, and the explanation was that basically they didn't think he was acting like an active shooter. As he's walking up to you, um, do you ever ask him, and I understand it's a chaotic situation, do you ever ask him for identification? No. Do you ever uh, ask him or do anything with the fact that he's possessing an AR-15? No. See, and it's explanations like that that I have to take a pause for because I've been forced to watch videos of a man shot in the back seven times because they said he had a knife on the floor. And I watched a kid shot 16 times in the street. And I watched a 13-year-old shot point blank in the chest. And now a man who's just killed two people with one of the deadliest weapons you could possibly have uh, on you is walking towards the police with his hands up as chaos is happening all around. And they basically say, go home. Right. And and it's not going to answer the question of guilt or innocence in this case, mm-hmm. but it is very indicative of the differences in the way police treat people in, the, in this yeah. country. Mm-hmm. That would have been, been my last day, unfortunately. Um, Stacy, let's move to the defense. What is the case they're trying to present about Rittenhouse uh, and, and who are some of the you know, witnesses they're expected to call to testify? The defense told jurors in opening statements that um, Kyle Rittenhouse will, will testify. And actually, the legal experts we talked to said it's practically, practically a necessity, right? You don't, there is a, you don't have to right. testify. You, know, um, you are legally and constitutionally protected from being forced to do that. But that in self-defense cases... When you're trying to get an acquittal based on your state of mind, you have to share your state of mind. They, they say he's he's not a risky witness because I wondered if he was a risky witness. He's he's young. He's he's not that educated. The experts I talked to thought that you know his his youth would actually probably work in his favor. That if he seems sort of scared and and bumbling up there, then it'll be easier for jurors to imagine that he was scared and bumbling when he was out on the streets of Kenosha that night. My last question to you, when we, when we have these, these really high-profile cases where it feels like we are not negotiating but navigating our country's problematic relationship to race mm-hmm. and gun ownership and, and police accountability, it often feels that, like, if there is a conviction, well, maybe that means justice for the people involved, but it doesn't feel like it does anything to change systems. And if there's not a conviction, that is in itself a, a moment that says, look, the system is broken. Do you feel like the the results of this case whichever way they go, are going to 
kind of leave us with just like a bittersweet feeling either way? I think one of the jurors said it best during jury selection when she said, no matter what happens, half the country is going to be angry when this trial's over. And I, I think, you know, the judge keeps saying that he, and I, I think he sincerely means it. He keeps saying he wants this to be such a fair trial and an example of justice that everyone's faith in the system is going to be restored. As one, when he told one juror that, the juror said, yeah, I appreciate your optimism. But mm-hmm. she was like very unconvinced. And, and, I, and I too am unconvinced. I, I don't think that there's no way the entire country moves through whatever the result is and says that was how it was supposed to work. Yeah. Bittersweet was the wrong word. I just meant bitter. Uh, well, Stacy, thank you so much for joining us on CityCast Chicago. Anytime. This case carries such heavy emotion for people who are listening. And I appreciate you being here to break it down. Thanks for having me. Before I let you go, a little bit of news, y'all. Staying on the Rittenhouse trial, the Chicago Police Department announced late yesterday they are canceling cops scheduled days off this weekend in anticipation of a possible verdict in the case. Expect things to be chillier today as a cold front blows in, bringing some rain and maybe even a little snow later this week. I know you don't want to hear it, but it's coming. And some good news to get you through. Tonight, you can head over to the hideout in Bucktown for Gimme the Light, an inclusive comedy show featuring some of the city's brightest black and brown and LGBTQIA plus comedians. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. You are now uh, in a very illustrious group, the Three Timers Club. It's only a few people in that group. Excellent. It's like on Saturday Night Live when you host five times, you get to you a jacket. Are, you know, Do I get a jacket? We ain't got no jackets or no cigars, <laughs> but...